Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Into the week of Sunday, October 11th, which means we are less than 25 days until the election. So we thought it would be a perfect time to do a series called Let's Talk Religion and Politics. And over the next four weeks, we're less than four weeks, but the next four Sundays, we're going to uh, hear from guest speakers. Uh, Kelly is going to preach next week. And uh, we are going to look at different ways that we can understand our religious and political life, particularly in the context of, of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, and how we might be able to uh, contextualize and think about our own religious and political life together. So this morning, I, I want to do a little bit of outline of my thinking around uh, religion and politics as it pertains to um, some of the like key themes that I see throughout uh, the life of Jesus and particularly the Gospels, and maybe some of the qualities um, that we can carry um, from that into our own lives. So I want to look at a couple of definitions um, of just what does it mean to be religious, what does it mean to be political, uh, and then look at some of the, the stories and themes in the life of Jesus. And then I want to uh, contextualize uh, just a little bit of that for our, our current political moment and kind of see how we can uh, take what we've, the qualities that we've seen in the life of Jesus and bring it into our, our current context in our own lives, uh, in our own life as a community. All right, so I want to begin by saying what I'm not trying to do. Okay, so I'm not trying to be partisan. We have enough divisive uh, political rhetoric in our culture. Uh, we're, we're all well aware of the political tribalism that goes on in our in our world. And honestly, that has become a, a, a new form and a new kind of uh, religion. You know, what team are you on? Dig in your heels, that kind of thing. I'm not trying to be uh, partisan. Uh, I also want to say that, uh, you know, Jesus was not apolitical at all. He was radically prophetic in his critiques of the religious and political institutions of his time. And his favorite group to criticize in the Gospels, as most of you are aware, is rule-following, educated, uh, progressive religious people called the Pharisees. So um, I'm not trying to be partisan, uh, but I also just don't think that there's anything partisan uh, about saying that all human beings have the right to live, to clean air and water, to learn, to work, uh, to access healthcare, and to access equal rights. Uh, so. Uh, I'm not telling you who or how who to vote for or how to vote, um, and I'm also not saying that I have all of the answers or the correct perspective on religion and politics. Um, I want you to know that this is just what I'm hearing and seeing in this moment of time, and I could be wrong. Uh, I'm not trying to make an exhaustive list of all of uh, Jesus' values or everything that we see in the Gospels or how we could perfectly contextualize all of the Gospels in the New Testament into our lives in one sermon. I'm not trying to necessarily do that. Um, I also do not want to give you a list of things to do, all right? God's grace is about liberation and freedom, not obligation to measure up to a new moral standard. I'm also not trying to both sides this conversation. In our culture, in our world, we get a lot of uh, both sides. Here's what one side said, here's what the other side said. Uh, I'm not gonna both sides this. There's clear 
in deliberate damage being done to our democracy and the political apparatus at large from the right, which has been happening for decades in bad faith that doesn't exist in any comparable form on the other side. What we see today from the Republican Party is a full and unashamed assault on human rights and the future of the planet that we share. This doesn't absolve Democrats from any kind of critique. Uh, there are plenty of problems to go around, but I am not interested in just sitting here and pretending as if those in power in the White House and the Senate are not somehow bad faith actors who care nothing for the planet and the people. I like how Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove points out in uh, one of his books, he says, Donald Trump's presidency has created a moral crisis both within the Republican Party and in American public life. It would be irresponsible to ignore this fact, but it would also be naive to pretend that Trumpism somehow emerged apart from the moral narrative that the religious right preached for four decades. The policy violence that presses down on poor people, undocumented people, people of color, and the earth is being executed in God's name. We cannot, as a people, retreat to an apolitical faith that tries to not engage in public life any more than an individual can pursue spiritual health without addressing the body's physical needs. So it's important for us to have strong opinions and deeply held values and, and beliefs about what's in the interest of the public good. I think we see that Jesus clearly demonstrates a deep concern for the common good and <clears throat> excuse me, the future of humanity and has a righteous anger towards those who take advantage of the press, oppressed in society. Uh, I also want to make sure uh, that I make the point that politics is not about charity. Um, there's a lot that we could say on charity, and maybe we can do that uh, when we talk on Sunday. But charity often perpetuates societal inequity because it absolves and relieves Christians from the responsibility to see and care for the oppressed other because their charity and contribution performs the morality for them. Therefore, uh, they don't have to align the in with the interests of the poor because they become the savior rather than realizing that they are the ones in need of saving. An example I often use when I make the distinction about politics and charity uh, comes from one of my professors at Fuller who worked in homelessness uh, in Los Angeles. And he often talked about how churches in Los Angeles who have food pantries, who have homelessness services of some kind, uh, what it actually does is it prevents that church from actually doing the things that would either prevent homelessness or relieve an end homelessness. And so it kind of traps um, good intentions and um, good moral Christians um, from actually knowing and working in public life towards the ending of homelessness. So uh, there's an entire uh, format for that we know uh, is the pathway to end homelessness, which requires a, a sizable amount of public pressure and uh, public uh, motivation uh, to, to make happen um, from homelessness prevention to, to um, housing and so uh, to a myriad of other, um, of other issues. But churches that uh, do these sort of like performative uh, roles, um, it actually prevents them oftentimes from being connected to uh, the political implications to actually 
end homelessness. So, so uh, politics is not about charity. And finally, I know I'm probably forgetting something consequential, but I'm not trying to say that anyone is a bad person or beyond redemption based on political affiliation. We all have a way that we uh, identify or see ourselves either religiously or politically. Uh, that's fine. We all have really close relationships with friends and family members who identify as, um, you know, Republican or Democrat or Independent or Green Party or or wherever you are along the political spectrum. And um, no one, I'm not trying to say that anybody is a bad person. The good news of the gospel is that everyone is invited into the beloved community in Christ, and we are called to uh, love our enemies and work towards everyone's redemption. Uh, maybe a message, though, for us is that Jesus does point out that it, it does take the rich and those in positions of power uh, a difficult time to accept being loved into the kingdom of God. Jesus tells the rich man to sell everything he has and give it to the poor. Uh, and maybe that is a ju- just a message for all of us if we have ears to hear. Okay, so I want to do a couple of brief definitions on what it might mean to be religious. The writer Kent Dobson has a definition that I particularly like, and it's simple. To be religious is to orient your life toward meaning. To orient your life towards meaning. So religion is simply a life oriented towards meaning. And that's an open definition, but I want to think about it in the positive sense. So whenever we're thinking about this series and and, and the, what we're going to look at in the life of Jesus here, um, we're looking at it in, in sort of the, the positive um, rather than uh, exhaustive. So to be religious is to orient your life towards meaning. Okay, so what does it mean to be political? Okay, so my definition is to live and care with the common good in mind. Okay, it's a very broad definition, but to live and care with the common good in mind. A little bit more extensive uh, definition from there would be uh, to live mindfully with concern for our world and the public common good together with deepening empathy and aligning interests through continual encounters with those who are suffering and seeking justice and equality. So if, those, if that's what it means to be, you know, broadly religious and political, uh, what what does Jesus's religious and political disposition look like, and and what could it teach us? I think it's important to keep in mind that we really want to look at uh, the perspective of um, how does society um, treat the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized. If we read all of the Gospels, that seems to be a deep, deep concern. So Jesus shares this care for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized, and people not just as individuals, but how society and religious and political institutions are treating people in order to change and reform those political and religious institutions. So I I want us to think about it in that way, and then also let's take a look at some of the uh, qualities that we see in the life of Jesus, and then we'll figure out a way to maybe think about those contextually. So I think a good way to begin is to begin with prayer. And we see Jesus all throughout the Gospels, praying, submitting himself to God, um, asking for wisdom, and cultivating a life of humility, always willing to um, to be, uh, you know, the phrase when Jesus says that, uh, I came to serve, not to be served, to uh, 
um, to always be teachable. He's cultivating um, this level of humility and the ability to be able to forgive and to accept forgiveness. Um, this is submitting to um, our own process of transformation. And we see this demonstrated throughout Jesus's life in baptism, submitting himself to the waters of death and resurrection, spending time in the wilderness, uh, being broken and poured out in order to be filled, 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, this is dying to, to self, to ego, whatever you want to call it, in order to see God and to see other people. And Jesus would then, in his ministry, teach the disciples to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, developing a level of empathy. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this requires us to know our neighbor and the existential issues that they face on a daily basis. So I want to be clear that to love our neighbor, as is often talked about in Christianity, is not some kind of affectionate feeling like, oh, I love my neighbor, or oh, I feel sorry for poor people, or I donate to this organization, or I went on this mission trip, and so I have this uh, awareness or this love uh, and affection towards someone. Uh, to love our neighbor is to know deeply the issues that oppress people different than us, and then working on their behalf or alongside them for justice. Uh, a question that I like to ask oftentimes when thinking about this is, who has the power in society or a situation, and how is that power being used? And I don't want to get too much uh, deep into st statistics, but a good way to think about this oftentimes when we think about the religious and political life and how we can uh, understand what it is to, to love into institutions and life, common life that uh, is often complicated and oppresses people is just simply to to follow the money. Where where is the money and where is the power in a given situation? How is that power being used uh, for good or for bad? And a good way to do this is to follow the money. For example, I mentioned this before, but the U.S. budget for the military is ticking up to, towards $1 trillion when you add in Homeland Security. Plus, our country spends around $115 billion in policing. Uh, this is more than the entire U.S. discretionary budget. And we've talked about it before, but that's almost more than every other country in the world combined spends on their militaries. Everywhere else in the world combined. So, Following the money shows us a set of values for a, a people and a political system. Uh, Cornell West says, justice is what love looks like in public. And so it's important for us as Christians and religious and political people to ask these kinds of questions of uh, who is my neighbor and how do we work towards justice if love is not just an affectionate feeling towards an individual or a people group, how do we work um, alongside people in a way that truly looks like the love of Christ? So compassion, mercy, generosity, all of these synonyms and sentiments that go along with uh, what we think about as Christian love um, are not just simply good intentions, but forms of costly grace. I mean, Bonhoeffer talked about this, this idea of costly grace 
in uh, relation to what he called cheap grace. And he says this, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which, at which we must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs us our lives. It is grace because it gives us the only true life. A story that we think about in terms of uh, who is our neighbor and Christian love is, of course, the Good Samaritan. And Gustavo Gutierrez, a theologian, uh, said this about the Good Samaritan. The neighbor was the Samaritan man who was despised by the prevailing culture, who approached the wounded man and made him his neighbor. So the neighbor is not he whom I find in my path, but rather he in whom whose path I place myself, he whom I approach and actively seek. So our question is, in whose path are we placing ourselves as Christians? Related to this, uh, the author Jim Wallace, uh, pastor, activist, says, given the residential, economic, and even religious segregation that literally defines where most of our lives tread, we can't really do what Jesus says until we disrupt our normal pathways by moving outside of them. Uh, this is why the gospel is always a message to us and not so, somehow a message to um, some person that needs to hear it over there. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a social gospel for us, calling us into uh, different and, and deeper pathways. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a social gospel. Uh, I talk about this um, all the time because I, I get into conversations where um, we have this prevailing notion in Western Christianity that uh, the gospel is somehow about just the individual, that it's somehow private and individualized and is something that you just keep to yourself. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a social gospel. It is only good news if it is good news here and now for those on the underside of power, for the people who are poor and disenfranchised. The gospel can't be understood or lived by people in positions of power. It just can't be. People in positions of power who, are, who sever themselves from the poor and the interests of the poor, who sever themselves and don't share the concerns of the oppressed and the imprisoned. The Bible and the Gospels are good news for those who are in need of liberation and restoration of their human dignity. When Jesus begins his ministry in Luke 4, he announces to the synagogue, I've come to preach good news to the poor, liberation to the captive. Jesus demonstrates over and over that his ministry is about lifting up the marginalized. It's about healing. It's about liberation. It's about being present. It's about feeding crowds. It's abundance for those who do not have abundance. In Luke 6, in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus opens up by saying, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger. Blessed are you who weep. And then he goes on and says, But woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. 
I mean, do we have ears to hear this message to us who probably don't have to worry about where our dinner's going to come from? Who probably have some savings in the bank? Woe to you who are rich. This is the social gospel. Blessed are you who are poor, and woe to you who are rich. The gospel can only be worked out in public. Um, the day before Martin Luther King was assassinated, he said, somehow the preacher must have this kind of fire shut up in his bones, and whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. And I think that message goes for all Christians, that Christians must have this kind of fire shut up in our bones, that when injustice is around, we have to tell it. And this kind of fire we also see from Jesus as a form of prophetic anger and a prophetic imagination where Jesus follows in this line of prophets you know, alongside his cousin, John the Baptist, who was a prophet, an anger at injustice, which he saw as an offense to God and human dignity and creation. Liberation means sometimes turning over the tables, acts of uh, nonviolent resistance. Um, some have even said uh, Jesus turning over the tables in the temple was uh, a particular kind of violence that ended up leading to him being arrested and crucified. It is this prophetic and righteous anger. Nonviolent action can also look like uh, the subversive teachings that we've talked about uh, that Jesus has in the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus teaches those who are being taken advantage by empire because of their economic standing how to reclaim their human dignity um, in creative, peaceful ways. Uh, the prophets call us to shout out and to not hold back, Isaiah 58.1. When there is injustice in public life, those who follow Jesus must side with the poor and the oppressed because we have to understand that that is the very sight of the God who liberates. I've come to announce liberation for the captive, the year of Jubilee, the canceling of all debts. Can you imagine if we canceled everyone's debt? Uh, the task of a, a Christian prophetic life is to evoke a consciousness, Walter Brueggemann says, a perception that is alternate, alternate to the consciousness of the dominant culture around us. We have to nurture and nourish and evoke a kind of imagination, a consciousness that is different, that is counterculture, um, countercultural to the dominant narrative around us. Lastly, we have to remember as Christians, what we see in the life of Jesus is this pattern of death and resurrection, that true Christian power is about being on the underside of power, the dignity that can never be stolen or destroyed. Christian power is crucified power, power found in weakness, which is never aligning our ultimate hopes with those who are in power anytime. It doesn't matter what political party you might uh, fancy, Jesus's life teaches us that resurrection power involves the process of death and rebirth, death and resurrection. This is contrary to the conventional wisdom of empire and the myth of redemptive violence. That is, if one side is being violent, then violence will eventually solve the issue. 
But crucified power, power found in weakness, teaches us that our hope is not found in our own efforts or in some um, super politician who, who can wave a, a magic wand and fix everything. Our hope is found in Christ, who is the very center of our own being and makes his home in the body of Christ, who gathers as the beloved community, who lives together, breaks bread together, struggles for justice together, and for the common good for everyone in the future of our planet. This kind of faith, this kind of trust uh, is a process in finding beauty in a broken life together, broken and poured out for our good and the struggle in the crucified power is the seed of Christ um, that maintains uh, a relationship with the poor and the oppressed, um, which can never, be, can never be destroyed. Power found in weakness. And ultimately, this power found in weakness is simply about the flourishing of human life grace poured out into creation, the flow of eternal love. Uh, it's a stream that can never ultimately be damned by injustice. That the kingdom of God is here and also arriving. Jesus says, I have come that you would have life and have it to the fullest. The kingdom of God is about announcing this year of Jubilee, which it has to involve a radical restructuring of society and religion, or you wouldn't have ju- you wouldn't be able to have jubilees. It's why it's not about the individual or per- person or people group. It's political because Jesus is not calling for simply the changing of hearts and lives, but making clear that God's vision for a beloved community, the kingdom of God here and now, necessita- necessitates the tearing down of religious and political institutions that harm people. It involves an understanding that we are not healthy until all of us are healthy. Okay, let's try to contextualize some of this. And like I said, that's not an exhaustive list of the values. It's just some of the stories and themes that that came to my mind this week. One way that we can think, I think, easily about contextualizing this is our sign that we have on the corner uh, outside of Mission Hills, which says, Love is love, black lives matter, climate change is real, women's rights are human rights, no human being is illegal, and love and kindness can save the world. Um, I have a friend who calls that kind of like the duh statement, but it's important to, to think about how we can contextualize the social gospel in very practical ways in our lives. So for instance, whenever we're thinking about our religious and polit- political life coming up, in this election or any election, here are some ways I think that we can think about this. Okay, so let's just start with women's rights or human rights. Jesus radically includes women at the center of his ministry. Women are the only ones who stand by Jesus as he's being crucified. Mary Magdalene is the apostle to the apostle. She's the first one to speak to the resurrected Christ. Uh, There are women uh, at the forefront in all around the life and ministry of Jesus. This is really important, particularly in our current and um, recent history and women's roles in religious and political life in our country uh, have been based on well-funded religious and political campaigns to maintain bad theological concepts that women should somehow be subordinate to men uh, in, in work life. And women's rights are still under siege 
in things like equal pay for equal work, in conversations uh, in our national dialogue around uh, women's right and access to healthcare. Uh, secondly, healthcare is a human right. Jesus went around healing the sick for free, and we're still debating in our country about whether it's still moral to allow private insurance companies to make billions of dollars a year while millions of Americans die because they're too poor to receive the coverage they need. This is absolutely immoral. And when we think about economic inequity, that is a massive issue that Jesus obviously cares about. His entire ministry is directed at the poor and oppressed. Economic inequality is running rampant in our country right now. If you haven't seen a graph of the last 40 years and how economic inequality has uh, increased, the gap between the rich and the poor has increased, and we still have uh, people living at uh, starvation wage of our minimum wage, which hasn't changed in over a decade. It's $7.50 an hour. You can't have the dignity of being a human being on a starvation wage especially in a country where U.S. billionaires have increased their wealth by $850 billion since the start of the pandemic. That's 28%. Uh, 30 million Americans are collecting unemployment. 30 million Americans have gone hungry during this time. And 12 million Americans have lost their employee-sponsored health insurance. See, it all goes together. Uh, while the billionaires in our uh, country have made uh, going up to a trillion dollars in less than a year. I've said it before, but the richest three billionaires in our country have more money than the bottom half. That's 165 million people. And if you add up all the billionaires in our country, they have two and a half times the total wealth of the bottom half of every American per, uh, adult in our country. That's 165 million people. Okay, climate change. Climate change is real. Um, this involves everything from... Um, well-funded campaigns to run pipelines through uh, exploited uh, and to exploit sacred lands, uh, we all know the story of Standing Rock, to rolling back environmental regulations. Uh, the Trump administration and the Republican Party are currently rolling back uh, 100 common-sense environmental regulations in order to benefit corporate greed. Uh, immigration, no human being is illegal. Jesus and the Hebrew scriptures speak extensively about welcoming the stranger and the immigrant with the realization that we too were once immigrants. We will be judged by how we treat the stranger among us. No human being is illegal. Uh, immigration rights are a massive topic when we think about our public life and the common good together. Uh, this is not on our sign, but the right to housing is a human right. How is a person to flourish with the dignity of being a human being if a person is always worried about the roof over their head? Uh, and don't try to use the weird uh, homelessness argument that some Christians try to do, that it somehow um, they turn homelessness into a virtue because Jesus was homeless. Don't do that. Um, we have 500,000 people who sleep on the streets every night, and we have the ability to, to solve this. We have the ability and the resources to solve homelessness. We have the strategies that we can solve homelessness if we want to. Do we have the public and political imagination and value set to say uh, every human being has a right to housing. Okay, we've talked extensively about the criminal justice system in Black Lives Matter. Uh, I did a sermon on it in the, in the summer. We know that the criminal justice system disproportionately uh, targets and affects black and brown communities, uh, mass incarceration, after Jim Crow, Black Lives Matter, 
Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Uh, LGBTQ rights. LGBTQ rights are uh, consistently under threat in our country, particularly now when we ha- we're looking at maybe perhaps a 6-3 uh, supermajority in the Supreme Court. LGBTQ rights. Um, our society is going to be judged by how we treat the least among us, the marginalized among us. Okay, finally, democracy broadly as an issue of biblical value, even though the concept isn't explicitly found in our sacred text, uh, for one's own voice to be heard is a value that we find in the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, In the Old Testament, God is the God who hears the cry of the oppressed. So silencing voices, silencing voices by depressing votes, gerrymandering districts, denying mail-in voting, closing polling locations, implementing poll taxes, changing voter ID laws. These are all ways that the political right are denying people a God-given human right to have their voice heard. Uh, This has happened throughout our nation's history. This is not something new. And those who are are trying to maintain a minority power by by intentionally uh, disenfranchising uh, people and people's voices, particularly those uh, of poor people and people in uh, black and brown communities from having their voices heard is, is anti-democratic and, and, and it's, not, it's not biblical. Okay, so those are just some of the way that I think we can think about uh, contextualizing the values and the ethics that we find in the life of Jesus, his teachings, his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, all of these core texts that show us how Jesus uh, was in not only his life, but how he maybe understood his religious and political life as being fully integrated. And maybe a word that we can end on this morning and a challenge for all of us is to go back to the question and the greatest commandment of love God and love neighbor. What does it mean for us to to know and to love our neighbor, to know the issues that existentially affect them on a daily basis. How do we love God and love our neighbor if it's beyond just an affectionate feeling or good intentions toward a group of people? How do we align our interests with their interests? How do we love God if justice is what love looks like in public? Okay, I think we're going to end there for this morning. I hope to see you on Sunday morning at Mission Hills at 10 a.m. We'll be outside, uh, so just pull in the parking lot, and we'll be in front of the parsonage out back. All right, as we say at Mission Hills, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well.